0: Good physics day everyone! What if I told you there is a place where you can discover new teaching methods, access scores of validated assessments, find videos to train your TAs and LAs, and even read a guide for how to move a lab course online? And what if I told you it is absolutely free and open access? Don't believe me? Well it's true! It's called PhysPort, and today I'm speaking with Sam McKagan, the director and mastermind behind this website. She shares how it got started and what you can find on the site, as well as current projects that she is involved with, including the Living Physics Portal, a completely open source community for sharing curricular materials to teach physics to life science students. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Today, I'm speaking with Sam McKagan. She earned her Ph.D. in physics at the University of Washington and joined the University of Colorado Boulder as a postdoc in physics education research soon after. Since 2009, she served as the director of PhysPort through the American Association of Physics Teachers, AAPT. Though this is one of her central roles, she is involved with so many other projects as well, serving as design and development director for the Living Physics Portal, the editorial director for the Effective Practices for Physics Programs Project, and serving as a consultant and external evaluator in a variety of other capacities. She has written notable articles, including a meta-analysis of how physics instruction impacts student beliefs about learning physics, best practices for administering attitudes and belief surveys, and ways to use FET simulations. She was the recipient of the Homer L. Dodge Citation for Distinguished Service to AAPT in 2013, which is presented to members in recognition of their exceptional contributions to the association. Let's go find out more. Joining me today is Sam McHagan, the director of Physport, but I think she has many, many other roles as well. So I'm curious, is is that an accurate title or do you have some other titles you might share?
1: Yeah, I'm the director of Physport. I am the design and development director of the Living Physics Portal. I'm also the editorial director of the Effective Practices for Physics Programs project, and I have about a bazillion other jobs. I don't have like one major full-time job, just a bunch of a bunch of jobs that really probably each should be a full-time job, but none of them are. At
0: some point in your past, you were a graduate student at the University of Washington, earning a PhD and writing a thesis titled Dynamics of Bose-Einstein Condensates and Optical Lattices. There's a little flashback here for you. Then your next step is heading to the University of Colorado Boulder for physics education research on conceptual understanding of quantum mechanics. And so began a fruitful and busy career in the world of of PER. Uh, So what led you from so-called traditional research uh, into PER? Could you share a little bit of your story?
1: Uh, Yeah. So I I learned about PER actually very early when I was an undergraduate. I went to the um, University of Washington for a summer research project, an REU program, and worked with the physics education group there for a summer. And so I got introduced to PER really early and kind of always knew I might be interested in it, but it took me a while to actually find my um, path there. And I went to graduate school and what I discovered my first year of graduate school was that I was way more interested in the psychology of my classmates and how they thought about physics than I was in the physics content itself, like because it was this very intense communal thing where we'd all work on homework together and I could see how like each of my colleagues like thought about physics a little bit differently. And like kind of knew their thinking process and like just the psychology of that was really fascinating to me. And I went into uh, Bose-Einstein condensation mostly because I had an amazing advisor and it was just really fun to work with him. But I kept noticing that I didn't really have any interesting Questions that I would that would like keep me up at night thinking about Bose Einstein condensates or about any physics topic, but I had like all of these questions, like research questions in PER that I was like excited to answer, and so I decided I really wanted to do uh PER in quantum mechanics education because quantum mechanics is cool and makes people. It kind of makes people's minds explode, and that seemed really fun to study. So I decided to get a PhD in something that would help me understand quantum mechanics really deeply, and then go on to do that as a postdoc. And I did, and then went on to other things.
0: Oh, that that's great. It's um, I, I kind of recognize myself a little bit in that in that role at the University of Connecticut, where I had my got my PhD. I've, I found that the the days when I needed to to get up to do my my laser research it was really hard to get myself out of bed that day and I probably procrastinated a little bit more than than I should have hope my thesis advisor um, doesn't end up listening to this episode well I guess I hope he does listen to it but uh, th- that he understands I think he did understand uh, I, I, I and bet then he
1: already knows that
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then and then the days when I when I was gonna teach I would stay up till midnight pouring over the, the, the education literature and I'd pop up early the next day to, to go into the classroom. So, you know, I definitely yeah. get a sense of that, of that feeling. Um, yeah. You, you early on were um, involved with some of the, the FET project, right? Um, yeah.
1: What, yeah. What was, was your,
0: great. what was your involvement there? How, how was that?
1: Yeah. There? So, so my postdoc, I was brought on, on uh it was a JILA grant. So JILLA is a national lab that does a lot of condensed matter research, or I don't know if they're a national, they're a lab, not a national lab, that does a lot of condensed matter research. And they got this big um, condensed matter grant. And NSF sort of at that time required you to have like a 10% component, education component to any grant. And so Carl Wyman at that time was doing education research um, and building FET. And so they said, Carl, you take care of this education part. And so he hired me to come in and do and build FET simulations relevant to the kind of research that was happening at JILA, And we used that to build all of the quantum simulations. So most of the FET quantum simulations I designed, that was kind of my postdoc, was designing quantum FET simulations and reforming the modern physics course there.
0: I'm going to go fanboy for a second. I love the quantum mechanics simulations uh, through FET. I, I'm i a They're big fan of, of FET in general, but I, I love some of those quantum ones.
1: It was, they, those I, were I, fun. Yeah. And, and I felt like when I, when I made those, I thought way more deeply about physics, like trying to figure out how those simulations should work than I ever did in my PhD in physics. Like, you know, most of my day-to-day work in physics research, was sitting around thinking about how to fix how to debug my code so that my simulation worked, and FET was really awesome because we had developers that we hired to do the coding, so I didn't have to do that. I just had to like actually think about the physics and how it should work, and how it would like make sense to people using it. So it was a lot of fun.
0: That's awesome. Another example of how when you go to teach something, that's when you finally actually learn it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I, I sometimes wonder if I frighten students in quantum mechanics when I say, you're probably not really gonna understand this. Or as I was preparing for this lesson for the 10th time, I learned something new. I think I understand it better than I used to. And then they sort of laughed nervously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, do I have any chance this year?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So, so jumping into your current role then. So the mission of Physport as written on the website is this. Our goal is to empower physics faculty to use effective research-based teaching so that every student has the opportunity to learn physics. That sounds great. Uh, so, where did the inspiration for creating a website like this come from? Uh, how did it start? Were you involved from the beginning, or did you join in later?
1: So, PhysPort um, it used to be known as the PER Users Guide mainly because I couldn't come up with a better name. Um, that was my baby, and it came out of when I was a postdoc. Uh, I started going to APT conferences, and I would go to these conferences, and I would I kept meeting physics faculty members who were teaching and they had come to this AAPT conference and they'd stumbled into some PER sessions and they just heard about PER for the first time. And I would end up chatting with them and they would say, wow, this PER stuff is so cool. And I hear you're in PER. So how do I find out more about it so that I can use it in my classroom? And at the time, this was like 2006, 2007, I was like, I don't know. I guess you could like read some research journals and some conference proceedings that are really hard to find. And there's some papers buried in there, and some of them are really good. And like this person knows a whole lot, so you should go talk to them. But there wasn't like anywhere that I could send people who were curious and wanted to learn more and were just excited. And all this great research being done on how to teach physics, but it just wasn't accessible to people who were in the trenches teaching. It was just really hard to know where to start in that literature if you weren't actually a researcher where it was your full-time job to read all those papers. And so I had the idea of making this website that just condensed all this stuff that people knew from inside knowledge like into one place where regular people could um, find it. And so I started... like trying to get people to fund me to make this. And I had one person be like, tell me that this was a useless idea and I should just write a book. Um, And another person told me that that uh, it, well, we didn't really need that because you could just use Google to find things. And I went to Bruce Mason, who is the editor of Compadre, which is another great web resource out there. And I told Mm -hmm. him, I pitched idea to him he didn't know me or i was just some postdoc and he got really excited about it and supported me and taught me how to write grants and helped me write my first grant for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the nsf which got funded um, and started building the per user's guide and it became pretty popular we got more grants and just kept building it and improving it and making it better. And now it's this huge project.
0: Thank you. That is, uh, it is such a great resource. And yeah, it's, on the one hand, I could see having a book on the shelf. But on the other hand, there's there's so much evolution that happens in, in PER and so many new things that come into play that uh, you'd have to write a revision every year. So uh, having a, a, a website that centralizes that is, is awesome and thank you Thank you Bruce for seeing <laughs> uh, seeing how how great of an idea this was. What if one of our listeners goes to the website right now and they don't have a particular goal in mind or challenge to solve what what will they find there? What are some of the the major features? What are some things uh, you would recommend that they check out?
1: I think a great place to start is the expert recommendations section that just has these little expert recommendations are short essays about some topic relevant to teaching or assessment in physics, and they try to answer the major questions that I hear from faculty. So when I talk to physics faculty about how to teach physics, I kind of tend to hear the same um, questions over and over, and so that the titles of the expert recommendations are often Questions and they're they're kind of the questions that people ask about teaching with PER most often, and so we try to just you know have like very accessible short summaries of um, these are some things to um, uh, that you could do in your classroom to address this issue. So that's a great place to start. Um, a very popular part of our site is the assessment site where we have access to all of these, um, standardized conceptual and attitudes, uh, surveys. Uh, there's a section, and this is on teaching methods where we sort of give you information and guides to all these different ways of teaching. And we define teaching method very broadly. So that can include like curricula or strategies or, um, techniques classroom structures tutorials computer simulations kind of we define it very very broadly and there's information about that 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 part of the site will probably be restructured in our next redesign but that's that's that was the very first part of of fizzport
0: oh i'll have i have some questions lined up about a number of these things so um so one of them that i i noticed when i hopped on is relating to the times that we're living in so you know we're all living through this very challenging time right now with the COVID-19 global pandemic. And I think all universities went fully online uh, during the second half of the spring 2020 semester. And most places are still online or at least in a hybrid form uh, for fall 2020 with a lot of uncertainty for the upcoming spring. So I see that you have some resources on Fizport to address those current needs. Can can you say a little bit about uh, what faculty and teachers might find there?
1: Yeah. So. A lot of these were developed very quickly because this happened so suddenly, right, that it was just things were going about as normal. And then all of a sudden, it was like, okay, tomorrow, you have to start teaching your course online. And and kind of every faculty member in America had to completely uh, switch course with very little training or guidance. And so we felt this sense of urgency to just get something out there for people to use. And there was a lot of places where people were throwing out different resources or ideas and just exchanging ideas of um, where can I find resources? What's the best way to like still do class participation on zoom? Should it be synchronous or asynchronous? And so we have a few expert recommendations on just collecting all of these resources that we found in various different places and putting them up to. So there was two uh, written by the Fizzport team, our former postdoc, Linda Struba and I, um, she really spearheaded putting those together. And those are really great, just like comprehensive resources. And then we have uh, a couple others from uh, outside experts that had things they wanted to share. Um, one of the things that I've seen as a big issue with the teaching online is people trying to think deeply about how to do this in a compassionate way, because I think Mm. there's there's some push to just like, okay, how can I just go online as efficiently as possible and still do exactly what I was gonna do and make it as close as possible and still cover the same content? And like, how can I just do the thing, the crazy thing they're asking me to do? And I think there's also been a lot of pushback to that of people saying, well, wait a minute, what we're being asked to do is actually crazy. And our students are, are you know, many of them are losing their jobs, their family members have COVID, they might be losing their house, like people, I mean, we are in a pandemic and people are suffering and just sort of expecting our students to go on in the same way is not actually reasonable or compassionate. And so we also try to have some guidance in there for how to be more thoughtful about this and be compassionate and, and, and not just... Not just dive headfirst into let's do this the same way, and and not think about what we're actually doing to our students right now. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's wonderful. Such an an important point, and uh, you know, thinking about the students' uh, mental health and and teachers' mental health. You know, certainly uh, we're we're being thrown in, and is there an expectation to do it? And uh, as as teachers, we were tend tend to be overachievers. Yeah. So so we might push ourselves too hard to try to make it just right to try to um to to do everything that we that we had been doing in the class before and you know such an important time to reflect and and just kind of sit back and say what's what's really important you know what's yeah. important for the students what's what's best for their health what's best for my own health yeah. know, it's definitely an important piece so I I'm, I'm very happy to hear that those those articles address that too
1: yeah Yeah. And I'll say one more thing about this. uh, It seems like we're entering into a different time now than we were. The things that we have on Fizzport right now were these things that were just written quickly in response to this like urgent shift that nobody had time to prepare for and people were just kind of doing the best they could. And now this appears to be the new normal. We've had a summer to sit and reflect upon it and think about it. And now we kind of know that that we're going into who knows how long of of this continuing but it could be at least another year given the way things are going and so i think now there's we're more in a period of thoughtful reflecting and planning on how to do this better and i'll say we don't have as many great resources on that yet and one thing about fizzport particularly the ex the particularly the expert recommendations is these are contributed by experts in the field. And I use the term expert that that term can be intimidating to people. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are anybody who's doing great things in their classroom is an expert on something on the great thing they're doing in their classroom. And we are kind of actively looking for contributions from people. So if, if there are I love people contacting me and giving me ideas and of who's doing great things that I should be knowing about or that I should be you know, soliciting to write things for FizzPort. So we would like to be collecting more about what people are doing now that we're having a little more time to reflect and think about what we're doing in these remote environments.
0: And of course, the pandemic is going on right now, but then then along with that there is so much other unrest as as well and uh i i wonder do you think there's a there's a place on on fizzport if you started thinking about how you might get information up about uh having more inclusivity in in the classroom being able to reach uh, minority students a little bit better being able to uh reach uh women in stem or or to to help to help faculty have resources to be able to interact with these students that we've I guess, traditionally not supported as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something we are thinking about a lot. We have a few resources on that, but not nearly enough. And I'd like that to be a future project to look into that. Um, One thing we are doing right now is uh, trying to reach out to people who are doing that kind of work to write more, expert recommendations for us and to provide guidance. But that really should be a dedicated project. And we'd really like to not only have specific resources on PhysPort about equity and how to support all students and especially marginalized students in physics, but trying to integrate those those kinds of things into everything we do on PhysPort.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly seeing the the recent uh, uh the physics teacher that came out, uh there's so many articles that are are addressing these these many issues that are are coming up again and again. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. there's a lot of people thinking about it, so that's that's great. So, let's say I do have a particular interest to go back sort of more to the the general use of, of PhysPort. Uh maybe I want to use for instance clickers in the classroom uh mm-hmm. or more generally some kind of polling software. So what are the types of resources that I might find to help me out? And and how would I, would I use those? How would I go about searching for polling software?
1: We do have a, I think we have a few expert recommendations on that. We've got one on which polling method should I use for peer instruction? And I don't think we go so much into the details of which, polling software just because it changes so quickly. Mm that it's hard to keep up with. So I'd say with any sort of specific teaching issue that you have, you can look up, um, you can go into the expert recommendations and search there, or you can go into the teaching methods and search there, because we also have clickers itself as a teaching method or peer instruction, which is a specific teaching method that uses clickers. Um, Also think, pair, share, which is often used synonymously with clickers, but but is a somewhat different method and also technology-enhanced formative assessment, which is like a different philosophy, but also about sort of using clickers or some kind of polling method to promote peer interaction.
0: It's just getting in there and start to dig through the resources. Yep. Yeah. Yep. To go back to one of those major tabs that you had mentioned, assessments, there are so many concept inventories, attitude surveys, reasoning tests, things like that out there. Force concept inventory, the test of understanding graphs and kinematics, mechanics baseline, the conceptual survey of electricity and magnetism, the Laws and test, the Colorado learning attitudes about science. That's just the name of some of the ones that I've used. Yeah. Fisport says there are 95 research-based assessments. First, can you give a brief description of what we mean by a research-based assessment? And then how is that different from a, a test that I just make and give in class?
1: Yeah. So the the force concept inventory was sort of the, the first of these. And then there's been a bazillion of them in every content area of physics kind of modeled on the force concept inventory. But the idea was that they had done All of this research into how students think about a particular topic in physics. And, you know, in in the case of the force concept inventory of the FCI, that topic is forces. And it's well understood in PER that there are certain places where students tend to get stuck and struggle and um, have issues making sense of things. And they tend to be really conceptual issues. And so the questions on that test are designed based on research to. uh to really get at the main issues and test students conceptual understanding and i think often assessments in physics when people don't necessarily base it on research. It's just like, can you solve this problem? And what we found is that it's very easy for students to learn how to solve a problem algorithmically without actually understanding the concept behind it. And so these kinds of tests are generally designed to really get at students' conceptual understanding as opposed to their calculational ability. And you know the, the FCI was sort of famous because a lot of physics professors would look at it and say, this test is too easy. Of course, my students are going to score well on this because they can do all these complex calculations and then they would be shocked that students would do very poorly and they would have these epiphanies and realize that like actually they weren't really teaching their students the conceptual thing. And so it's really useful for teachers to to give these assessments and try to get an understanding of are my students really understanding the concepts how is my teaching what are the areas where my teaching is working what are the areas where it's not Um, and how can I improve it and so these kinds of assessments they're not designed to assess individual students and be used to grade students they're really used to assess your teaching and figure out how what are you doing a good job of teaching or not a good job of teaching, and how can you improve it? There's different levels of research based versus research validated and how well it's researched. Ideally, a test like this you should you know you should base it on research into student ideas in this topic, and then you should do student interviews where you ask the students the question and have them talk out loud about how they're thinking to make sure that they're really thinking about it the way that you intended that question, that, that them answering that option really does mean the thing that you intended it to mean and administer it to different groups of students and do statistical analysis of it. And there's various ways to to validate these assessments. So there's, there's assessments in kind of nearly every content area of physics. And now they're starting to be assessments about attitudes and beliefs and other kind of non-content areas.
0: So I know you recently co-authored a paper in The Physics Teacher titled Best Practices for Administering Attitudes and Belief Surveys in Physics. Why, Why should a teacher pick out one of these surveys to try? Can you share any spoilers about what they might learn?
1: I think one of the famous results of some of these attitudes and belief surveys is they ask a lot of questions about sort of what is physics? So it's not The questions are not, do you like physics? It's like, what do you think physics is about? Is physics about solving problems algorithmically or is it about deeply understanding something and how does learning physics work? And so they develop these surveys and they administer them to experts and sort of establish how expert physicists think about physics and then they ask students. I think the big result early with some of these surveys is they would give the survey at the beginning and the end of the class. And in many, many physics classes, even research-based physics classes, uh, the students' beliefs would actually get worse over the course of the semester. So they would answer more like physicists at the beginning of the physics course and less like physicists at the end. And the reason is because a lot of physics courses are basically training Students, to you know, we're bombarding them with so many problems that they can't actually make sense of the problem. They don't have time to like think about what the problem means, they just have to get to the answer. And so, we're training them to think about physics as a thing where you have to like equation hunt and search for the right answer without actually understanding what it means. And so, they think less like we would like them to think about physics than we would like. Over the course, like we were actually doing damage in a lot of physics <laughs> courses. And this is true even in courses that use great research-based methods, and the students learn a ton and their scores improve on the FCI or whatever content survey, they are still like their attitudes are are decreasing. And there are courses where You know, it's sort of a victory with a lot of these attitudes and belief surveys. If you can just get the same results at the beginning and the end, so you at least just don't do any damage. And there are courses that can do that. And there are some courses that actually make them better. Uh, But that is, it's really hard to do that, it turns out.
0: Yeah, this is baffling to me. I'm thinking about how I've I've used modeling instruction as a as a, a way to um, go through content and try to minimize content and think more about the the physics and about building a graphical model and the mathematical model, but without focusing as much on it. And yeah, it's just crazy to think that that even with a, a research back method, you can sort of take backward steps. That's I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> Is the best physics class no physics class at all? Is that what we're saying?
1: <laughs> no, no, it's not. There are great courses. My colleagues and I wrote a paper in 2013 called How Physics Instruction Impacts Students' Beliefs About Learning Physics: A Meta-Analysis of 24 Studies. And so we kind of looked at all the different studies that we could find in which people had given two of the these um attitudes and belief surveys, the CLAS and the impacts. And uh, what we found in that meta-analysis is most studies, the, the scores over the course of a term either go down or stay the same. Mostly they go down. And there was a few courses that tended to make the shifts go up to actually improve students', students attitudes. And those tended to be courses that had a much more explicit focus on model building or on thinking about like metacognition and how is it that we're thinking about physics. They tended not to just be courses, just teaching physics content. Like it was courses where they had to really reflect on what they were doing. So it was like explicitly talking about how do you build how do you build models or how do you think about teaching or an attention to epistemology of like, how do you actually think about physics where that was very explicit. Um, Another thing that increases scores on those attitudes and belief surveys is serving as a learning assistant. So when you actually help others learn physics, then your tendency is to, then, then your beliefs tend to get better.
0: One last question about Fizzport, and then we'll, we'll move into talking about a couple of other things then. Uh, what do you think is an underutilized feature of Fizzport?
1: So I think one thing is we have this amazing Periscope collection, which is a collection of video lessons that to use with TAs or LAs or any kind of novice instructor for, for training teachers, um, and what they are is they're videos of student interactions in real classrooms. And so you use them like in a TA training course or a learning assistant training course where you have the the teaching assistants or whoever watch the video of this classroom. And there's something interesting in that interaction. And then there's lessons that have discussion prompts. And so they talk about what they saw in the video and it's training them to notice things in student interactions that you might not notice in the moment in real time. Mm -hmm. And the video Mm -hmm. clips are usually very short. They're one or two minutes and it's just like this little piece of interaction. And so you can watch it over and over again. And each time you watch it, you notice different things. And so by sort of watching the student interaction, you start noticing things you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. And by practicing doing this, it trains you as a teacher to notice things in the real classroom that you wouldn't have noticed and so these are just these really great little lessons for training teachers how to notice things in the classroom and it's a little buried on the fizzport page under workshops and so sometimes people don't find it but the people who do find it and know about it um, really love this resource
0: i'm just envisioning you know at a you know, traditional beginning of semester department retreat, uh, with with just teachers and faculty. Just bringing up one or two of these and putting them up, and, and let the let the people who have been in the classroom for years and years have a have a go at those and just see what some of the answers and and things that faculty notice. I mean, I think that could be great for anybody, and yeah. not, not just uh, TAs and LAs, but anybody who's teaching.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we're we're putting together a new grant on that. The 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 person that created uh, Periscope is Rachel Schur, who's a professor at the University of Washington Bothell. Mm -hmm. And I'm working with her on a new grant to try to expand the audience of that, because I think right now it is mostly used for LA and TA training, but it really could be used for any kind of teacher, teacher training, including faculty. So
0: another director role that you have is with the Living Physics Portal. Uh, and this, this one is particularly near and dear to my heart. And I will be talking to many contributors to this portal on, on other episodes of, of this podcast. Uh, can you say just a, a little bit about, uh, about the, the portal and what audience does it provide for and what resources will be available?
1: The portal is it's really a community for people who teach physics for life sciences to share Curricular resources and talk about them. And there are a lot of community activities like workshops and working groups where people can get together in small groups and like share their materials or talk about teaching issues. And it's a way of putting together all these materials. So, in this particular content area of teaching physics for life sciences, it turns out there's about uh, Ten different groups, research groups, who got small NSF grants to develop curricular materials, and they've developed. Each of them has developed this great set of materials for teaching physics for life sciences, and each of them has a slightly different approach. And all of those people got together to create the Living Physics Portal and kind of put all that stuff together in one place and seed it with this this research-based material. But then also anybody can contribute material to the portal and you can take things that you found on the portal and adapt them and then re-contribute it as an adaptation and explain like how you used it and how you changed it. And so it's really trying to encourage open source sharing of materials and changing them for your own needs and talking about how you change them and learning from each other and really like... Getting everybody involved in the process of creating and adapting and and improving materials together.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to 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 see how this kind of continues to evolve. I know it's in in the beta phase yet, and so some of the initial contributions are still coming in. But definitely very excited to see where where this goes. And uh, one of the things I'm I'm excited about for for the purposes of of faculty um, getting their work out there is the opportunity to to have peer-reviewed contributions. Can you say just a little bit about what the purpose of that is and and what benefits will provide to both the the users of the portal and the contributors?
1: So right now we have uh, two libraries of contributions to the Living Physics Portal. There's the community library where anybody can contribute and there's no review or vetting or anything, you just put your stuff in and it's there. Only registered users can um, see it. And it's kind of understood that things in the community library are sort of work in progress, but it's a way of sharing your things with others and getting feedback and, and exchanging ideas. And then there's the vetted library, So, after you contribute something to the community library, you can then contribute to the vetted library, and that is reviewed by our editorial team. And the editorial team looks at it, and they have a bunch of criteria to judge is this. The physics accurate, the biology accurate? Is it a good pedagogical thing? And have you explained it well enough for people to understand how to use it? And people who've been through that vetted library process have said that it's been really awesome for them to get the feedback from the editorial team on their materials that the editorial team really thinks about it and gives you useful, thoughtful feedback, and people have have said that they're, they felt like their materials improved through that process, through sort of responding to and thinking about the things that the editorial team was thinking, and then, like, explaining their materials better, and so if you see anything on the, the Living Physics portal with that vetted library tag, you know that it's sort of been through this process, and our edit, editors felt like it was a good, um, relevant and and helpful material. And the plan eventually is to add a third library called the peer-reviewed library. And the idea of that is that it would be sort of even more thorough review than the editorial team, where it's sort of like publishing a journal paper, where it really goes through this thorough process of saying, this is a really good thing. It's based on research and, and meeting the learning goals that you have. And I think one of the goals behind that is to really like create a culture of scholarly approaches to teaching and having it so that you can like put that on your CV, that you have this peer-reviewed curricular material in this portal and that that's sort of like equivalent to a research article, but it's it's for teaching rather than than research and sort of recognizing the scholarly work that goes into creating these teaching materials in the same way that we recognize the scholarly work that goes into producing research.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great. And I uh, I also love the idea that you don't necessarily have to go into PER per se. It's like you could uh, also be f- focusing in on just developing your your teaching and have a place where you can go and get feedback from other folks who are who are doing something similar, which might not be the case at your own institution. You may find that nobody's kind of doing those similar things that you're doing there, but uh, to have this broader community is such a, such an awesome thing.
1: Yeah. And I, I think we really want to encourage this to, you don't have to be a PER researcher to have a scholarly approach to your teaching and contribute to something like this. And And we want to make that be, you know, anybody who is, a teacher can be a thoughtful teacher and can develop materials and and share them and be part of this, this community. So I want to say why I'm excited about the Living Physics Portal, um, which is, so I have no background in the particular topic of physics for life sciences students. Um, I don't know anything about biology. I haven't taken biology since high school. Um, so that was not the, the reason I got involved in that. I got involved because of my background in Phizport and thinking about user-centered design of websites for physics faculty. And when we were doing interviews, so we did a lot of usability testing of Physport where we would talk to faculty and have them try it out and tell us how they were thinking about it. And the thing we got over and over again was people would say, wow, this is so great. Okay. So now I want to find the actual materials. And we do now have, um, there's a very buried part of Fizzport called the curricula pages where we actually have like whole sets of curricula on Fizzport, but we don't have very many. And most of the Curricula in sort of standard introductory physics that are research based are published by publishers, so you got to buy them from Pearson or whatever. And so you can't just get them on PhysPort, and you can't, you often can't like adapt to them. But what people really wanted, like through all the years that we were studying how people were using PhysPort is like, they're like, I want the stuff, I want the materials, and I want to use it, and I want to adapt it, and I want to talk to other people about it. And so Living Physics Portal was a group of people that were actually trying to do that to create this community where people could just put all the stuff there, and you could just get it. And it was sort of the vision that I'd always had for PhysPort. But you can't just do that for all of physics all at once, like create this massive database of curricular materials because it would just be too huge and and you couldn't put all the stuff in there and be able to find anything. And so the Living Physics Portal is focusing on that for one very specific topical area of physics for life sciences students. And so that's an area where you kind of can get the whole community on board and get all the materials in there and just like build up this thing. And so it's really, this is like a proof of concept of this, this idea of really promoting open source curriculum sharing and building a community around that. And so my sort of future goal in life of my career for the next five or 10 years is to take this model of the Living Physics Portal and expand it to other content areas. So we've already done that with uh, one project where we've created something called the Energy and Equity Portal, which is a site for high school teachers that are teaching energy or other uh, areas of physics and trying to relate it to issues of equity and social justice. Um, And so that, that is in its very, very early stages. Uh, But there's a bunch of other topical areas, like we could do something on upper division physics or accessibility in physics or labs and kind of create these new portals that are um, copying the kind of model and structure of the living physics portal, but in different topical areas.
0: My next question was going to be, what are some other projects that, that you are in, involved with? And I just got a, a piece of that there and a whole lot of your energy and enthusiasm for, for why you're excited about the the physics portal, the Living Physics Portal, and, and some of these other things. So that's that's awesome. I loved hearing that. If you could endorse one piece of physics education research, what pops into your mind first?
1: That's so hard because there are so many. <sighs> so many (laughs) uh, great things. Um, There is a paper that came out um, this year that I'm really excited about by um, Steve Kanem and Shemena Sid called Demographics of Physics Education Research, in which they did a sort of analysis of which students are being studied in physics education research and whether that's representative of the population of students as a whole and the the quick answer is no, it is not. Um, and that because physics education research tends to be happening at large research universities uh, that tend to over represent white privileged students, that tends to be who we study. And so it's basically showing that kind of all of physics education research is, is a little is, is skewed towards studying maybe the students who least need the help of physics education research. And so I think that paper, um, that paper's gotten a lot of attention, rightly so, and kind of prompted the field to start paying attention to who are we studying? Who are we serving? There's a, just a lot more attention right now to um, equity issues in physics and serving students who've been traditionally underserved issues and there's a lot of uh, young people doing really really great work in this area. I'm gonna if I name people I'm gonna leave people out but maybe I'll try anyway. um, Some of the work that I'm, I'm really excited about is like Uh, Simone Hayater adams Brian Zamaripa-Roman, got about a billion other people that are just doing doing great work and paying attention to students that PER has not traditionally paid attention to. And um, I'm just really excited about the energy that some of this younger generation, younger, more diverse, and more equity-minded generation is bringing to to PER and things that just, you know, not only we didn't talk about when I entered the field, but that when people did talk about, they were sort of like shut down and told that that was stupid and not PER. That is something I'm just really excited about where the field is going.
0: It's amazing how long we've been teaching and and how long education research has, has been around to this point and it's still there's so much for us to to learn yet there's so many uh groups of students that we haven't that we haven't thought about just trying to wrap our heads around you know maybe the majority of students and yet and yeah like like you've said those those might not even be the ones who really need the the full tool belt that that PER can offer so that's yeah very exciting to hear about those sorts of studies and. Uh, in 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 the show notes that I'll put up, I'll definitely link to that, that paper that you suggested, um, some of those those researchers you mentioned, and maybe I'll get a few more names from you so that I can try not to leave too many people out. Sam, thank you so much for for taking some time this afternoon to to speak with me and share about uh, the work that you've been part of over the years, and about these portals and websites that that you've uh, helped to develop over time. Just such amazing resources and. Uh, I'm so pleased that they're, they're out there and that you've been uh, willing to share your, your time and effort to 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 make them and to talk about them.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me and putting this out there. This is fun.
0: And that was my conversation with Sam McKagan. She really has her finger on the pulse of the physics education research field. She has an opportunity to see the 10,000-foot view of everything. She's been involved with so many projects, and she sees their trajectory, attempting to find an orderly way of sharing them with us in an open way. That's a lofty and immensely worthwhile mission. Thank you, Sam. About a week after this conversation with my guest, a new article appeared in The Physics Teacher titled, Physport Use and Growth, Supporting Physics Teaching with Research-Based Resources Since 2011. Sam co-authored this article, which presents an overview of resources on Physport, discussion of research and development of the site, and data on the continuing growth of site usage. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about this week's guest, see a recap of major topics that we discussed, and access links to articles and other resources mentioned in the episode, head on over to physicsalive.com forward slash Sam to check out the show notes. That's physicsalive.com forward slash Sam. While you are there, you can subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter so you can stay up-to-date about current episodes, future projects, and ways to share your experiences with the show's listeners. If you are on social media, you can check out Physics Alive on Twitter and Instagram, and go to facebook.com forward slash physicsalive page. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a five-star rating and review of the show. This helps other educators like you find the show. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, keep rocking it in the classroom and be well.